if you were king for a day, what would you do? I mean, just think about that for just a moment. If you were the king, or for you ladies, queen. If you were the king or queen for a day, what would you do? If no one could tell you no, money was no object, if you could do anything you want, 24 hours, what would you do? Would you go to the best restaurants? Would you drive the fastest, fanciest cars? What would you do if you were king for a day? Here's what I would do. I would have a beach, a book, and one of those drinks with the umbrella, and I would just sit and I would do absolutely nothing and have people come and serve me. This is at the end of our Gospel of Mark series. We'll have three sermons left after this one, and then we're going to do the book of Joshua. But between Mark and Joshua, I'm going to be on a beach. As you can tell, vacation is getting very close to, and so I'm getting very excited for that. But that's what I would do if I were king for a day. I asked my wife, Ashley, I said, what would you do if you were queen for a day? She said, I would be left alone, so please take the girls and go to your grandparents' house. And that's exactly what I did. So yesterday, she was totally alone all day because that was her day to be queen for a day. What about you? What would you do if you were the king or queen for the day? That's what we're going to see, what Jesus does, how Jesus spends his 24 hours, how Jesus spends his day as the king. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 1 through 20, where the sermon title is Jesus crowned the king. Today, Jesus, his identity, his divinity, his purpose, his cause, his goal, his mission is going to be finally revealed in the gospel of Mark. And Jesus is going to be crowned the king. And the key verse to understanding this text comes from Mark chapter 15, verse 12, where Pilate says, this, then what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? It's a question about Jesus' kingship. It's a question about Jesus' authority. It's a question about Jesus' allegiance, his loyalty, his sovereignty. It's a question about his ability to rule and reign, not just for the king of the day, but rather for the king of our lives. What are we going to do with this man that they call the king of the Jews? For those of you who are new in our study of the gospel of Mark, we are in chapter 15. So for the last three years, we have been studying the life and the ministry of Jesus. We started in Mark 1, chapter 1, where it says, this is the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That word Christ is a title, the Messiah. It is the long-awaited, anointed one. It is the king. Mark opens up with Jesus being declared the king. And then the first words out of Jesus' mouth is repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus comes to reveal himself as the king. And he's preaching and teaching and healing and performing miracles and signs and wonders revealing the kingdom of God. And then Jesus, he is betrayed, he is arrested, he is brought before the religious leaders, and they accuse him of blasphemy, which means to declare oneself to be God, and then they bring him to a man named Pilate. And Pilate is the high Roman official, he's the second in charge, he is the governor over Rome, and he is 
standing before Jesus, and he asks this question. He says, what are we going to do? What are you going to do? What do you want me to do with this man that they call the king of the Jews? It's a question of Jesus' kingship. It's a question about Jesus' lordship. It's a question that you and me and everyone in this room must ask ourselves. What are we going to do, not just on our day as king, but what are we going to do with this man who claims to be king? And there's some of you here in the room today, and you have already decided what you're going to do with the king of the Jews. You've decided that you're going to give your life to him. You've decided you're going to trust him. You're going to believe in him. You're going to bow down, and you're going to worship him. You are going to surrender your life, and you are going to live for Jesus. And if that's you, and you've already made that decision, can I just go ahead and tell you that's the best decision you'll ever make in your life, to worship Jesus as king, to love Jesus as king, and to serve Jesus as your king. And so today in this message, I want to affirm you. I want to encourage you. I want to motivate you. I want to celebrate you because you made the best decision that you will ever make in your life, worshiping Jesus as your king. But at the same time, I recognize that not everybody in this room believes Jesus is their king. That there are people in this room who you are on the fence. You're skeptical. You're not yet sure what you believe. You heard stories about Jesus. You've heard people talk about Jesus. Maybe you even believe that Jesus is God, but there's a difference between believing in Jesus as God versus surrendering to Jesus as King. Many people have made a profession of faith that they're not walking out in their obedience to Jesus as their King. It's not enough for us just to believe that Jesus is God. We must also believe that Jesus is our King. And some of you, you're here today and you're trusting in someone or something other than the king to give meaning and value for your life. I know there's people here who you're trusting in a relationship to give you meaning and to be your king, whether a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or whether in marriage, or whether through your children, you're looking for someone other than Jesus to be the king of your life, where you worship him, you bow down, you orient and center your life around someone or something. Some people trust in sex or sexuality or their gender to be their king. Other people, they they trust in politics. Some people trust in religion. Some people trust in government to be their king. Some people trust in finances or money or success or vocation or their education to be their king. But can I just tell you today that no matter what you are giving your life to, no matter what you are sacrificing for, no matter what you are trusting or believing in, I just want to show you today, God the Holy Spirit has brought you so you could sit under the Holy Scriptures because he wants you to know that above everything, Jesus is a better king. Above everything that you hope in, Jesus is better. Above everything that you trust in, Jesus is better. Above everything that you are banking your identity on, can I just tell you that Jesus is better. Above everything, Jesus is a better king. What we're going to see today is that above religion, Jesus is a better king. Above politics, Jesus is a better king. Above culture, Jesus is a better king. Above your opinions, Jesus is a better thing. Above society, Jesus is a better thing. Above your past, above 
above your present, above your future. Jesus is a better king above your guilt, above your shame, above your condemnation. Jesus is a better king above your hopes, above your wants, above your dreams. Jesus is a better king above your faults, above your flaws, above your failures. Jesus is a better king above what they say, about what they say about you. Jesus is a better king above your pride and your self-esteem. Jesus is the better king. And so what I'm going to show you today is this, five reasons, five reasons that Jesus is a better king. If you have your Bibles, pick it up, and we're going to read Mark 15, 1 through 20. In the back of your head, I want you to keep this question in mind. What are you going to do with the king of the Jews? What are you going to do with this king? How are you going to respond to this king? Are you going to believe in this king. What are you going to do with the king of the Jews? Five reasons. Jesus is a better king. Here's, here's what we read. And as soon as it was the morning. So this story takes place just before nine o'clock in the morning. The sun's coming up and the chief priests, they held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council and they bound Jesus and they led him and they delivered him to Pilate. Can I just pause here? That anytime religion and politics mix, it's never a good thing. What we see is the religious leaders are bringing Jesus before the government officials. This dates all the way back to what we studied in Mark chapter 3, where the Herodians began to plot with the Pharisees to crucify Jesus. The unfolding narrative of the gospel of Mark is now being displayed before us. Ever since Mark chapter 3, the cross has been in the background, and now the cross is just moments away from Jesus' life. The Pharisees and the Herodians, the religious and the political, are now plotting to crucify Jesus. And here's what we see now. They bound him and they led him to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered them, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. Circle that. We'll come back to it. Now, at the feast, he used to release one prisoner for whom they have asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named Barabbas. And the and the crowd came up, and they began to ask Pilate to do what he usually did for them. And answering them, he said, do you want me to release to you? Who? The king of the Jews. For he perceived that it was out of their envy, not Jesus' guiltiness, but out of their envy and jealousy that the chief priests had him delivered up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him released, to have him released for them. And he said, Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with this man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to him, why? What evil has he done? But they just shouted all the more, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him over to be crucified. And here's how the story ends. And the soldiers, they led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. This is about 800 Roman soldiers dragging Jesus through the center of the city, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together, our king receives his crown. But he receives a crown of thorns. And they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. 
And they were striking his head with the reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his purple cloak and put on his clothes and they led him out to crucify him. Look down at verse 2. Pilate, who is the second in charge, he is the highest elected official over the place of Jerusalem. His only boss is Caesar. And Pilate in this moment, he has the life and death of Jesus in his hands. The decision he's going to make to do with the king of the Jews is not only going to affect Jesus' life, but it's going to affect all of our lives, and it's going to affect the entire course of human history. This decision, B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, everything hinges on this question that Pilate asks, and he says, are you the king of the Jews? Now, when we read it, it looks like a question, but it's not actually a question. It is an insult, and it is an accusation. He's not asking, are you the king of the Jews? The actual Greek rendering of this word would read more like this, you, comma, king of the Jews, question mark. What he's saying is this, you, king of the Jews? I don't think so. You, king There's no way you could be the king. For just a moment, I want you to close your eyes and imagine with me Jesus. Not the Jesus that you see portrayed in images. Not the Jesus that you saw in a, growing up in Sunday school or in the, the little Bible that your grandparents read you. Not that Jesus. I want you to picture the Jesus that Mark is presenting before us. Just close your eyes. For 24 hours... Jesus has been awake, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, early in the morning, sweating literal drops of blood. And then Judas comes with a battalion of soldiers, 800 soldiers, and they seize Jesus. They arrest him. They bring him before the high priest where they beat him, they mock him, they spit on him, they blindfold him, they punch him. And so for hours, Jesus is being been punched in the face his eyes are swollen black. His nose is bleeding. The hair has been ripped out of his face. He's got spit on his face and in his hair. His hair is disheveled. His face is disfigured. And they bring him right in front of you and they say, King of the Jews. Now open your eyes. Doesn't really look like a king, does he? I mean, what kind of king would be treated like this? See, at this time, they know a lot about kings. We don't really know a lot about kings in our day, but they know a lot about kings. And the Jewish leaders, they were expecting a king. See, the Old Testament had always prophesied the coming of a king, a king that would rescue them, a king that would deliver them, a king that would set them free, a king that would be there for them and give them power and give them religious zeal and authority. They were looking forward to the king because the entire Old Testament is preparing their hearts and prophesying for the coming of a king. They would call him the Messiah. This Messiah was going to come and he was going to be a religious leader. He was going to be a political figure. He was going to come and he was going to overthrow Rome and he was going to remove Caesar as their Lord and he was going to rule and reign and he was going to be their king. And then they show up and they don't get a military leader, but instead they get a merciful servant in Jesus. 
And instead of being someone who was going to be religious and teach the traditions of man, as we've seen through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus doesn't hold to the traditions of man. And instead of, instead of just being friends with the Pharisees, he fights with the Pharisees, and he is friends, and he eats with the sinners. This is not the king that the Jewish leaders were expecting. And so they hate him, they revile him, and eventually they, they even murder him because he wasn't the king that they expected. But Pilate, he would know a lot about kings too. I mean, Pilate's boss is Caesar. Like Pilate is, other than Caesar, the most wealthy, the most successful, the most powerful, the most prominent person in all the world. I mean, Rome at this time basically was the entire world. All the nations were connected under the Roman Empire and the Pax Romana. And so here we see that Pilate, second in command, holds the life of Jesus in his hands. He says, you, king, I know a thing or two about a king or two, and you ain't no king. And here's the reason why many of us miss it. It's because Jesus is not the king that we expected, but he is the king that we need. He's not the king that we expected, but he is the king that we needed. See, when we think about kings, we think about ourselves. When we think about kings, we think about what we want, when we want, how we want it, and nobody can tell me what to do. How's that worked out for you so far? Not very well. When we think about kings, we think about power, we think about prestige, we think about status, we think about success, we think about our lives and what we can do, and we think about all these different things that would qualify us as a king. Like, when I'm a king, I want a beach and a book, and I want everybody to leave me alone and serve me. When my wife is a king, she's like, hey, could you please leave? That's what my wife wants on her day as king. But Jesus comes and he doesn't fulfill the role of king that we expect because Jesus comes to be the king that we need, to exceed our expectations and give us our need. And your expectations of a king is far too low. And that's why Jesus had to come, because he wasn't the king that we expected. He was the king that we needed. See, we've tried power. It doesn't work. Look around the world, turn on the TV, turn on the news, get on Twitter or Facebook and just watch all of these people try to pursue after power. It doesn't work. We have wars and rumors of wars. We have plagues and famines and we have people killing each other over imaginary lines drawn in the sand. It doesn't work. We've tried prestige. We've tried selfishness. I mean, just look, we have other nations where people are starving to death. In our own nation, people are eating themselves to death. It doesn't work. We've tried pride, and it's destroyed your relationships. It's destroyed many of your marriages. It's destroyed many of your friendships. We've tried everything, and it doesn't work. Instead of pride, Jesus comes, and he says, I'm going to show you what humility looks like. We've tried to live our lives where we receive all the glory. You weren't made to handle that weight. And so Jesus comes and he gives us grace. We've tried to live our lives for power, success, or for status. But it doesn't work. And so Jesus empties himself and humbles himself. And he becomes nothing more than just a servant. And we look at it and say, doesn't look like a king. And to me, I would say that's a good thing. Because he can give us what we really need. If you need hope and grace and mercy, then Jesus is your king. If you need salvation and forgiveness, then Jesus is your king. 
if you have tried everything, you still are not satisfied. It's because you've been trusting in the wrong kings. Jesus is a better king. Above everything, he is the king. And so let me give you five reasons today to believe in Jesus as our better king. The first reason we see is this, is that our king is silent. And a world filled with noise, our king is silent. And a world filled with people arguing on the internet and in the Facebook comments, our king, silent. And a world filled with memes and TikToks and reels and a world filled with people fighting over everything in the world. Guess what our king is? Our king is silent. Look what happens to our, our king. Here's what we read. We read in verse 1, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consolation, and the elders and the scribes of the whole council. And they bound Jesus, and they led him away, and they delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, You, king of the Jews, are you king of the Jews? And he answered them, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him again, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was Amazed. This entire section of scripture, Jesus only says four words. Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you have said so. And Pilate asks him again. He says, are you the king of the Jews? But no response, no answer. Are you going to defend yourself? Nothing. Are you going to justify yourself? Are you going to excuse yourself like... Do you know where this goes? Like, you're going to die. They're going to kill you. You're going to be crucified. If you don't speak up, if you don't say something, you're going to die. See, Pilate knew, as we've already read in this section of Scripture, that Jesus was innocent. He said, there's nothing evil this man's done. Why are you trying to kill this guy? And the Jews, they come and they say, oh, he's claiming to be the king of the Jews, and he's guilty of blasphemy. See, that's what we studied just a week ago. Just a couple weeks ago, we saw that Jesus was on trial before the religious leaders, and they accused him of blasphemy, which is declaring himself to be God. But the Jews don't have the authority to kill somebody, so they have to get the Roman officials to sign off on it. So they're trying to pawn Jesus off to Rome. And Pilate's like, that's a Jewish problem. That ain't my problem. That's your problem. That ain't my problem. Like, Pilate's job was two things, to collect taxes and to keep the peace. He's like, give me your money, leave me alone. That was Pilate's job. And so they're bringing Jesus before him, and he's like, this man is innocent. That's your problem. Quit bringing me your problems. Handle it yourself. But they keep stirring up the crowd. They keep making Pilate's job difficult. Remember, his second job was, leave me alone, keep the peace. And now the peace is being interrupted, and so Pilate has to make a decision. And he's trying to get Jesus to excuse himself. He's trying to get Jesus to defend himself. So he asks him again, are you guilty? And he says, absolutely nothing. And Pilate's amazed. Do you know why he's amazed? Because innocent men don't act like this. They, they, they defend themselves. They justify themselves. They excuse themselves. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't defy Pilate, defy the religious leaders. Instead of being defiant, in this moment, Jesus is silent. And he is amazed why was Jesus silent in face of certain death? Because Jesus understood something. Jesus knew there is no crown without a cross. 
If you're taking notes, I want you to write that down. There is no crown without a cross. In order for Jesus to be crowned as king, first he must go through the cross. In order for Jesus to set us free from our sins, first he must go through the cross. In order for Jesus to forgive us, first he must go through the cross. In order for us to be reconciled to him, first he must go through the cross. There is no crown without a cross. And Jesus embraces the cross because he's the only one who is able to truly wear that crown. Jesus knows there is no crown without a cross. And he's been telling us this the entire gospel. That's why in Mark 8, verses 39, he says, The Son of Man must suffer, must die, must be crucified. He has been preparing us, predicting and prophesying his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Because Jesus made up his mind. Jesus walked and marched directly to that cross. And he had an opportunity to justify or to excuse himself. And yet he didn't because he knows that without the cross, there is no crown. And without the cross, without the crown, you and me would still be in our sins. That hell would be full and heaven would be empty if Jesus did not, did not take that cross to wear that crown. He knew that you would still be in your sins. He knew that you would still be far from him. It was worth it to Jesus to go through the cross so he could wear that crown. It was worth it so you could be with him. It was worth it that your past could be erased, that your future would be wide open, secured, and guaranteed. It was worth it for Jesus to have you be called sons and daughters. It was worth it for Jesus to be able to deposit the Holy Spirit, God himself, inside of you, giving you spiritual, supernatural gifts to endow you with power and purpose for your life. If Jesus wanted you to be together in what is called the church today, first he must have to go to the cross on that day. In order for Jesus to be resurrected, first Jesus must die. In order for Jesus to return again as the blessed hope, our glorious Savior, first he must go through the the cross, then he will wear that crown. Right. And Jesus is silent. Instead of defending himself, he knows this is the reason I came. And he stands bold-faced, steadfast, accepting the cross. The second thing we see is this. Our, our, our king, he was submissive. Look what it says in verse 4. And Pilate asked have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. Multiple charges and accusations brought against Jesus. None of them are true. And yet Jesus, he doesn't defend himself. He remains silent because Jesus was submissive, submissive to the Father. If you think back just a couple of weeks when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he gets down on his knees and he prays to the Father. He says, Father, all things are possible for you. Let this cup pass for me. When he's talking about the cup, what is he talking about? He's talking about the cup of suffering. He's talking about the cup of the wrath of God. Some of you haven't heard teaching over the wrath of God. I want you to understand something. God is good. God is loving. God is pure. God is holy. And God's holiness cannot wink at our sinfulness. And so one day God's holiness is going to be revealed to the world and those who are still in their sin could not stand before a just and holy God. And those of us who are on this side of the cross, right, we get God's mercy. For those on the other side of the cross, they get God's wrath. But the wrath of God will be poured out. And here's what Jesus is praying for. He, he, he's praying about the cup of wrath. See, every single person who has ever lived from Adam and Eve all the way down to you and me, 
every sin we have ever committed is a drop in the cup. So when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, it's a drop in the cup. And then whenever Genesis through Malachi takes place, every sin committed is a drop in the cup. And then as Jesus goes along and the religious leaders and pilots, as they sin against Jesus in this moment, it's just another drop in the cup. But then you and me, as we continue to live our lives, every thought, every word, every deed, every action that is not a part of the perfect will of God is a drop in the cup. Every time you lied, every time you cheated, every time you stolen, every time you neglected your kids and got into a fight with your spouse without reconciling afterwards, and you know it's your fault, but you made it seem like they were the ones who were crazy. It's a drop in the cup. All of the big sins that we think about, rape, molestation, war, drops in the cup. Lying, cheating, stealing also drops in the cup. Could you imagine how big this cup must be? That God has been storing up wrath for the day of judgment. And he's praying in the garden, Jesus is, and he says, Father, I don't want to drink this cup. God says, somebody's got to drink the cup. Either you drink the cup or they drink the cup. But either way, somebody's got to drink this cup, and this cup will be empty, and my holiness and glory will be poured out on this world. Either you drink the cup or they drink the cup. And then Jesus says this powerful prayer in the garden. He says, okay, God, not my will, but your will be done. And in this moment, the heart of Jesus and the heart of the Father align, and Jesus submits to the Father, and he agrees to drink the cup. And our king submits. Some people would ask, that, why, why would Jesus go to the cross? Why would Jesus go through this? Why would Jesus do this? I want you to understand something. Is that Jesus didn't have to. He chose to. Jesus didn't have to die. He's God. Jesus didn't have to die. He's the king. Kings can do whatever they want. That's kind of the point of being a king. He didn't have to die. But what we see is this, that in the garden, he made a conscious decision that he was going to choose to die, that he was going to willingly lay down his life for us. And so when he's standing before Pilate, he doesn't say anything because he's already made his choice that he was going to come enter into this world and lay down his life so that way we might be saved. He didn't have to do it, but he chose to do it. This is what the Apostle Paul picks up in, in the book of Philippians. He, he writes this. He says in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself. He submitted by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus was, Jesus is fully God. He's the second member of the Trinity, God in eternity, past, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus is fully God. For those of you who say, Jesus never claimed to be God. I hear this all the time. People are like, Jesus never claimed to be God. People who say Jesus never claimed to be God, I would say never actually read the Bible. 
Because emphatically, publicly, Jesus declares himself to be God. We saw that just a few weeks ago. Nine times in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus declares himself to be God. And that's the reason that they killed Jesus. Because he kept saying, I'm God. And so they put him to death. But at the same time, we see that Jesus is fully man. I love what Augustine, the early church father, says, is that in the incarnation, in the incarnation, Jesus, he adds to his divinity, humanity. And here in this text, it says that he laid aside the divine prerogatives, and then he took on the form of a servant. So that way he can live a life just like us. So Jesus was born the way that you're born. Jesus lived the life just like you and I. He had to grow up. Luke 2.52 says he grew in wisdom, stature, and favor with God and for others. He had to learn how to walk and talk and read and write. See, we kind of have this picture that Jesus is like God, right? And so we're like, oh, all those things that we go through and all those humanity things, they don't, just doesn't apply to, to Jesus. But Jesus, he grows up just like us. And he had to learn how to build relationships and healthy boundaries. He had to get a job. He had to learn how to budget and steward and to save his money. Why did God have to do that? I mean, if you think about it, like this didn't have to, it's just a rescue mission. I mean, God could have been like, okay, three-day weekend. Jesus, go down there, die. I'll come pick you up on Sunday. (laughs) But that's not what he did. He lived 33 years in humility, anonymously, lived 33 years just like you and me. Why? He didn't have to. He chose to. And during his ministry, he was rejected, ridiculed, arrested, beaten, betrayed, denied, crucified. Why? He didn't have to do it. He chose to do it. And friends, Can I just say, like, this is what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Every other philosophy, religion, or ideology would say that you have to make your way to God. But that's not what the gospel says. The gospel says that God has made his way to you. That he humbled himself. You don't work, you don't earn, you don't glorify yourself. He humbles yourself that you couldn't do it. You can't make your way to him. Every other religion says through good works, through good deeds, you might can make your way to God. That if you reincarnate, pay off your karmic debt, you might be able to make your way to God. If you give enough times, if at first you don't succeed, try to reincarnate three times and maybe the third time is the charm. Or you could follow these seven pillars or you could go on this missionary trip. You could wear these clothes. You could read this certain translation of the Bible. You could pray in this language. And if you do enough good deeds and you outweigh your bad deeds, then maybe at the end of your life, God will love you and accept you and forgive you. But there is no guarantee. Christianity says that's the opposite Christianity says you can't make your way to God and so Jesus God of very God made his way to us why he didn't have to do it he chose to do it he could have saw you in your sin in your guilt in your shame in your condemnation and said you deserve that I mean he's God he's the king He could say, I know what you did on the worst day of your life. Shame on you. You made your bed. Why don't you go ahead and lie in it for a little while? See how that feels. He could have done that. He could have said, "Mm, not worthy, not worthy, not worthy, not worth my time, not worth my investment. You, 
No, still not good enough. He could have looked at you and said, pathetic. But that's not what he does. The father and son got together and eternity passed. Second Peter 1 tells us that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundations of the world. This was all God's plan from the beginning. He sees you in your sin and the father turns to the son and he says, go get him. Go. Go love them. Go save and serve and forgive them. Go rescue them. Go ransom them, redeem them, and forgive them. Go and die for them. And the son says, I agree. I don't have to do it. He chooses to do it. Why? Because he loves us that much. That he didn't have to, but he wanted to, and he made a decision. I'm going to do it. And he willingly chose to come and die for us. The son submits to the father so that you and me could become sons and daughters of the king. The third thing we see is this, is that our king, he substitutes himself for us. What we're about to see is what's called the great exchange. Friends, this is the gospel, that Jesus substitutes himself for us. He didn't have to, but he did it. And what he did in this moment is that all of our sin, he takes upon himself. All of our unrighteousness, he takes upon himself. All of our guilt and shame and condemnation, he takes it upon himself, and he gives us his grace. This is what theologian called the great exchange. It's the, it's the gospel message, and it plays out so beautifully and perfectly. It's actually mind-bending how this works. Let me just go ahead and read this to you. Now at the feast, he used to release to them one, prison, uh, one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for him. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you who? The king of the Jews. For he perceived that it was out of their envy, not of his guiltiness, but out of their envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests, they stirred up the crowd to have them release Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, what shall I do with this man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said, why? What evil has he done? Again, declaring his innocence. But they shouted out all the more, crucify him. Here we see that there are two men, and these two men couldn't be any more diametrically opposed to one another. We see in this moment that there is a prisoner whose name is Barabbas, and then we see Jesus. Now, Barabbas was a murderer in the insurrection. Jesus, on the other hand, is a Messiah who is teaching about a resurrection, completely different. And yet, as he's on trial, Pilate's like, Jesus is innocent. This man is guilty. This man is the worst of the worst. He is a criminal, a murderer, and he is leading a rebellion. This man, Jesus, what has he done? Love people? Feed them? Multiply a couple of Lunchables and feed 25,000 people two occasions? What else has Jesus done? 
And you want to kill him? And so he offers them this trade. He says, I'll give you Barabbas, but I really want to give you Jesus. And you know what they say? Give us Barabbas. We want Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. Give us Barabbas. And they want Barabbas. Why do we want Barabbas? Why do they want Barabbas? Because Barabbas represents all of us. Barabbas represents you and me. Barabbas represents all of humanity. Barabbas represents every single person who has ever lived when we compare them to Jesus. See, here, here's the deal. We live in a world where people want to divide others. They say, here's all the good people. Here's all the bad people. And I'm one of the good persons. And look at all those bad people. But the Bible doesn't say that there's such thing as good people or bad people. The Bible just says there's people and Jesus. And Jesus is in a whole nother category than everybody else. Everybody else, Barabbas, not Jesus. And so there's a choice between Barabbas and Jesus. And we want Barabbas because Barabbas looks like us. Look, 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 let's just compare the differences. I wrote some things down. It says that Barabbas was a sinner but Jesus was sinless. Barabbas was guilty, but Jesus was innocent. Barabbas was a thief who stole, but Jesus was generous as he gave. Barabbas was ruthless, but Jesus was compassionate. Barabbas was evil, but Jesus was holy. Barabbas was a rebel, but Jesus was righteous. Barabbas was a prisoner, but Jesus was perfect. Barabbas was delivered to death, but Jesus took his place and died the death that he deserved. And Barabbas got to go free because Jesus substituted himself. And after this great exchange, Barabbas went on and lived a new life. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the great exchange. Jesus substituting himself in your place for your sins. Jesus living the life that you never could live, dying the painful death in your place so that through him you might receive a new life. This, my friends, is the gospel. All of your unrighteousness is now placed on Jesus and all of his righteousness is given back to you. All of your sins are now placed on Jesus and his sinlessness is now placed on you. So now when God sees you, he doesn't see your sin. Instead, he sees the son. Jesus took your place. And you know what Barabbas had to do to, to receive this? You know what Barabbas had to do in order to be set free? You know what Barabbas had to do to be forgiven? Nothing. Didn't have to do a thing. Friends, grace is not a gift that we achieve, but rather grace is a gift that we receive. Amen. If you're taking notes, I want you to write that down, is that we don't achieve grace. Instead, we simply receive grace. This is so hard for us to understand in our society, in our day and age. We want what we deserve. Friends, can I tell you? You don't want what you deserve. And so in grace, through Christ, he gets, he gives that's what we don't deserve and what we could never earn. Barabbas gets to go free. You say, this is not fair. Grace ain't fair. Grace isn't what we earn. Grace isn't what we deserve. But we get it anyway. And the only thing we have to do is simply receive it. I meet people and they say, I'm just not ready to come to Christ. I say, well, why not? They say, well... My life just isn't ready. 
Let me go ahead and like get some things in order and get some things fixed up. And then, and then I'll start coming to church. I say, have you ever met church folk? <laughs> they ain't got nothing in order. <laughs> and some of these people I've been praying for seven years to clean up. <laughs> but we just take them as they are and love them a little bit more down the way. You don't have to clean up to come to Jesus. You come to him just as you are. I mean, Barabbas wasn't like, Jesus, before you set me free, let me go ahead and take a bath and a nice little shower, maybe get a little shaven. Oh, now I'm ready to be set free. No, even Barabbas came to him just as he was. Grace is not something that we earn. Grace is not something that we deserve. The gift of salvation is a free gift, and all you have to do is to receive it. I mean, just look at this. Look what... 2 Corinthians says, for our sake. For whose sake? Our sake. sake. For Barabbas' sake. For Pilate's sake. For the religious leader's sake. For the crowd who sang, crucify him. For their sake. For our sake too. For your sake. For their sake. For his sake. For her sake, for everybody's sake, for our sake. At the nine o'clock, there was a prophetic word that went out right here in this moment. To where God had laid it on our hearts to say, there's somebody in this room who you're believing everything that I'm saying, but you don't believe it applies to you. I want you to know that your is included in the hour. And God met a person this moment for salvation in their life today. God is so good, he knows that you would be here today. And he'll meet you in that place. Why? Because for your sake too. For your sake. What happens? He who knew no sin became sin. The weight of the wrath of God Laid on the shoulders of Jesus, the full blast of the holy hot anger is placed on the back and the beaten and the blooded back of Jesus. Every sin laid upon him. He who knew no sin became sin. Every accusation by the religious leaders, another ounce in the cup of wrath. Every time Pilate accused him and every time they shouted crucify him, it's just another weight added to the shoulders of Jesus and he bears it all for your sake. He who knew no sin did what? He became sin so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, righteous. In Christ, forgiven. In Christ, sinless. In Christ, your identity of guilt is removed. And now your identity of grace has been applied to your life. Through the blood of Jesus, the wrath of God is satisfied. You don't have to endure the wrath of God when you have received the grace of God. And our King Jesus trades places. 
And on the cross, he bears all of our condemnation. So that way we might receive his goodness, kindness, and compassion. Our king substitutes himself. Number four, we see our king, he suffers. Our king suffers. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, he gave him Barabbas. You want Barabbas? Take him. Then he scourged Jesus. That is to beat him with a cat of nine tails. It's a whip called a flagomer. It would be filled with bones and ball bearings. And as they would beat the back of Jesus, it would tender and fillet the flesh off of his skin. They beat Jesus, exposing his ribs and his nerves and his spine, bleeding out. They beat him. They scourged him and they delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the place, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. This is about 800 Roman soldiers. And if you know this, like Roman soldiers, they're not like... They don't just play around. Like, they're pretty brutal. Like, they're contracted, government-approved hitmen. That's their whole job is to kill and conquer. And now you have 800 of them dragging Jesus through the open city. A battalion clothed him in a purple cloak, not because he was the king they expected, mocking him, ridiculing him, taking a dirty cloak that they found on the ground. Hey, it's purple. Let's go ahead and throw this over the back of Jesus. Remind you that the back has been filleted open and the flesh is falling off and they take a dirty cloak, smash it on the back of Jesus. And then they take the crown of thorns, our king crowned on his day as the king. Our king receives his crown. Jesus is crowned king, but it's a crown of thorns. Do you know what the... The result of sin was death, and it's evidenced by thorns and thistles back in Genesis chapter 3. The cross is where Jesus begins to reverse the curse of the fall of man. He says, put it on my head. And they begin to drive the crown of thorns into the head of Jesus, mocking him, ridiculing him. And they put it on and they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with the reed and spitting on and kneeling down in homage to him. King of the Jews, king of the Jews. Don't look like no king. And after they mocked him, they stripped the purple cloak and they put his own clothes on him. After the cloak had probably scabbed onto his back, they ripped it back off, opening the wounds one more time. And they led him out to be crucified. Our king suffers. Next week, we're actually going to do an in-depth teaching over the cross and crucifixion and what it means. Many of us, we, growing up in Southeast Texas, we've probably seen a lot of crosses. Right? Probably wearing one on your neck. Probably the church you grew up in had a steeple and there was a cross on it. And we might have grown up seeing a lot of cross, but not hearing a lot of preaching about the cross. The cross is reserved for Easter Sunday. Here we are, Redemption Church. It's the end of June, and we're going to be preaching the cross. That doesn't make sense. You don't talk about the cross except for it's on Easter, right? No, we're going to talk about the cross because we all need to know about the cross. And we're going to study the cross in detail. And can I just tell you, it's going to be pretty brutal. It's going to be one of the most brutal messages you might have heard, right? 
because the cross is the most heinous and brutal death for anyone to ever die. The word excruciating literally means from the cross. The, the philosopher Cicero said that during this time, it was illegal to even discuss the cross in public because it was too shameful and no decent Roman would ever actually do that. That's how brutal the cross is. And we're gonna study the cross and we're gonna look at it and we're gonna learn from it. And here it just says Jesus was crucified. And you have to ask yourself this question. Why did he do this? The author of Hebrews says this. He says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, Jesus suffered. I want you to understand something. It wasn't the nails that kept Jesus to the cross, but it was his love for you. It was his love for us that kept Jesus on the cross. He could have pulled himself down, but he didn't. He could have called down a legion of angels to overthrow the battalion of guards, but he didn't. He could have used his own strength and his own power, but he didn't do that. It wasn't the Roman nails that kept Jesus to the cross. You think that could stop him? No, it was his love for you that kept him on that cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Our king suffers and considers it a joy so you could be forgiven. Our king suffers and he considers it pure joy so that way you could be forgiven and loved. Our king suffers and considers it pure joy so that way you can have eternal life with him. Our king suffers and our king dies so that way you can have eternal life with him both now and forever. That's what our king does. And our king considers it pure joy to do so. At this moment, you have to ask yourself, what kind of king is this? Kings don't do this. No king would do this. No king would be silent. No king would suffer. No king would substitute himself. No king would submit to anybody else. What kind of king does this? Our king does it. That's why our king is better than your king. Our king is better than whatever you're hoping in, whatever you're trusting in, whatever you're believing in. This is what our king does. What does your king do? Lie to you, steal from you, take from you, abuse you, mistreat you, fail you, let you down, disappoint you. What have the kings in your life done? Failed you. Our king Jesus will never fail because our king is a better king. And ultimately, our king is the one who satisfies. Right now, you're here today because you have a longing in your heart that has been unmet. You're here today because secretly, you want a king. We all want kings. I know we live in America and we don't like kings, but really, we want a king. I mean, this is why our lives are organized in the way that they are, because we're looking for someone or something to satisfy our longings. I mean, just consider the state of the relationships. Single men and women looking for a boyfriend or girlfriend to be their king. Make me happy. Give me meaning. Give me life. Love me. Please love me. Will you be my king? And they compromise their convictions and values because, well, they bow before their king or their queen. I mean, even people get married and they think that my spouse is going to be my king or my spouse is going to be my queen. And they're going to, they're going to give me hope and meaning. They're going, to, they're going to love me. And then you get married and you realize that's not going to work. 
(laughs) Or even kids. People have kids and they break their necks and their backs because they make their kids the center of their home. And can I just tell you, if you want to ruin a kid's life, make them their king. Kids are a gift. They were never meant to be your king. You want to see a kid grow up, resent their parents, have parents that only bow down and worship them for 18 years. Send them off into the real world. That ain't how life works. You're doing a disservice to your kids if you treat them as your king. There's only one king. Sex and sexuality, not a king. Never satisfies. Dirty and defiled. I mean, just consider even the politics that we're in. Like, I know I'm moving from preaching to meddling right now. It's okay. But what do we see the last four years? Give us a king. Give us a king. I don't like that king. Let's go get a new king. And we get a new king, and then it's all the same thing. Because only King Jesus can satisfy. I mean, look what, look what it says here. Pilate wishing to what? To satisfy the crowd. There is a crowd in all of your hearts yelling, calling out for meaning and purpose. And Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd, what does he do? He gives him Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivers him to be crucified. There's, there's one other thing that I didn't tell you about this man named Barabbas. His name is very interesting. You wouldn't get it in Mark alone, so we got to go to Matthew's gospel or church history, and what it tells us is this. His actual name is Jesus. That's why it says, they called him Barabbas. Barabbas is a compound word. Bar, Abba, son of the father. So his name is actually Jesus, son of the father. And here we see Jesus, the son of the father, the counterfeit, and Jesus, the son of the father, the king. Do you want the counterfeit? Or do you want the king? Do you want the fake? Or do you want the faithful? Do you want the counterfeit or the authentic? And you know what our hearts do every single time? Give us the counterfeit and crucify the king. Because we're hoping for someone other than Jesus to satisfy the needs of our souls. And they can't do it. Because people and things make terrible kings. People and things make terrible kings. Because we we want something that's going to satisfy us, and they always disappoint us. They always fail us. They always let us down. But our king, the real king, the true king, the high king, he will never fail you, never abandon you, never give up on you, never disappoint you. He will always be there for you, faithful and true, because he is the real thing. He is the true son of the father. He is the true Lord of lords. He is the true prince of peace. He is the true king of kings in all power, All glory, all authority belongs to him. People and things make terrible kings because Jesus is the king. Give us Barabbas. No, give me Jesus. Because he is the rightful, true son of the father. 
I love what C.S. Lewis says as we close. He says this. He says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world could satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Maybe a better way to put it for today's message is if we find ourselves serving kings that cannot satisfy, it's because you were meant to serve a better king. Are you here today and you're serving a king that fails you? King Jesus never will. Are you here today serving a king that disappoints you? King Jesus never will. Are you here today serving anyone or other things than King Jesus? Serve the king. He will never disappoint you. He will always satisfy you. And here's what makes our king so good. This is why our king is better than anything else. Because on the day that our king was crowned, he didn't serve himself. He served us. Because last note as we close, Jesus didn't come to be king for a day. Jesus came to be the king of our hearts. And we have a decision just like Pilate has a decision to crown him as king. What are you going to do with the king of the Jews? What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do? Here's what we do. We worship our king because he is worthy to worship. What king does this? No king but my king. And I'm going to stand and I'm going to praise and worship him. And I want to invite you to do so with me.